Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As always, these episodes could not happen without the fantastic support of our sponsors. Seeds here now, you know them and love them. Best in the business if you're looking for a North American-based seed option featuring the latest and greatest breeders, all the hottest drops, and guess what? They've got an incredibly schmick new website with fantastic new prices. They've been slashing the cost of everything to give you the best deal while still offering their guarantee on both satisfaction and germination. Don't delay. Best in the business. Thank you so much. Likewise, huge shout out to our friends Simply Souvenirs, our homies holding down the fort in Europe. If you're in the UK or Europe and you're looking for a hand-selected range of boutique genetics from both local and international breeders, check out Simply Souvenirs. They have the best customer service in the game, as well as new drops occurring on the regular, including some amazing smoking accessories, vapes, dab accessories and rigs, so much more. Check them out, Simply Souvenirs. We appreciate you guys. In order to make a name for yourself, you not only need to find and make some good genetics, you need to run them properly. Check out our friends, Copa Biological Systems. They have all the best solutions in the game for all pests and pathogens. The best way to keep your garden happy, healthy and pumping on all cylinders is to be proactive. Don't wait for an infestation, guys. Get onto it now. Grab yourself some Acupar-M if you're worried about aphids or some Spidex Vital if you've got spider mite issues. I promise you guys, knowing that your garden is pest and pathogen free is next to heavenliness. There's nothing better than a high quality crop that is 100% free of contaminants. And shout out Copert Biological Systems. We appreciate you guys so much. Likewise, you gotta make sure you're getting the most out of your garden. And for that, we need to give a big shout out to our friends at Pulse Sensors. If you're after more yield, more resin, higher quality concentrates and flowers, you need to get serious about your growth. So get a pulse. There are many hidden variables that can hold your grow back that you simply may not even be aware of. VPD is a common one. You can't feel it, you can't see it, you don't know about it. But let me tell you, your plants do. If you get a pulse sensor and dial the parameters in, you will see your plants responding in front of your eyes. From a single tent to a single room to a multi-facility operation, don't hold your next crop back. Get serious, get a pulse sensor. A huge shout out to the Patreon gang. If you guys want to get early access to upcoming content, unheard exclusive interviews with some of your favorite guests, as well as access to ad-free content and genetic giveaways going down monthly, check out the Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. So, on this episode, we're joined by highly requested guest, a breeder I've wanted to chat to for a very long time. On this episode, we have none other than the genetic genius, Snow High. Here to discuss all things land race, breeding, preserving, history, future, so much more. Let's get into it. 
Alrighty, gang, we're here for another one. And on this episode, we are extremely grateful to welcome the genetic genius behind Snow High Seeds, the land race lover and breeder extraordinaire himself, Snow High. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's very good to have you on the show. One of our most requested guests. So I'm sure we're going to get a lot of fanfare for this episode. But I want to ask you, because you mentioned it a bit earlier to me, how's the garden looking today? Have you been in there? Oh, yeah. The garden is uh, <laughs> every day. Uh, so, yes, I've been in the garden lately. And what are you working on at the moment? Um, right now, I'm working on a bunch of Mexicans, um, Thais, some Hawaiians, Colombians. I'm um, trying to bring back some of the um, old Colombian red type stuff. Um, you know, people were familiar with uh, like wacky weed. It was actually like the resinous versions of the Colombian red or the Punto Rojo. So I've been looking for the um, the phenotypes that are more specific to that. Um, I'm trying to bring back some of the favorites that people love, the Colombian gold, um, certain varieties of Colombian gold that are kind of more sought after than what people know as Colombian gold, because a lot of the Colombian gold was actually either like a low lead Colombian red that was bleached or another Colombian that was like bleached in the sun. So a lot of what people think is Colombian gold was something other than what it was. Oh, and um, I'm also working on some different ties. I'm analyzing the different varieties, trying to narrow down uh, where the chocolates came from. I have a good understanding of where they are, but I'm, I'm verifying what I already know with what I'm finding, um, trying to prove um, from me growing the, the, the varieties of chocolate tie that were here in the States that were sold to sticks and then taking what was uh, or land race or heirloom varieties grown in Thailand and Cambodia and Laos and trying to figure out what the genetic stock was that created these. What was their names um, that the growers were using for these strains? And then as it transshipped to different countries like Australia, United States, uh, Europe, um, what was what was the strains beforehand and what were they um, when they got to like the sellers that people received? So I'm trying to narrow that down. Um, a bunch of Highland ties, mango ties, purple ties. Um, juicy fruit ties, um, lots of different uh, squirrel tail tie stick varieties. Uh, just trying to narrow down what the provenance of these are, where they came from, what prov uh, provinces where more, the majority of these uh, varieties came from, were they lowland, highland, um, the microclimates associated with them, the people, the history of those people. Did they come from China? Did they come from India? Um, that type of thing. Uh, and then I'm trying to bring back some of the Hawaiian lines um, that people love, which are easier to grow. You know, they have the resin and the, the high types that people love and uh, just something special that, you know, a lot of people really love are the wine types. So, um, and the Mexicans, I'm trying to bring back some of the heirloom stuff that people are growing still in Mexico and some of the older stock that I'm trying to preserve so that more people can be, um, familiar with these lines that I grew up smoking, which is some of my favorite um, of all the different types of uh, herb. Can Mexican cannabis is a special thing to me. Wow. I think uh, one of the catchphrases I say on this show is you've just given me so many avenues we need to go down. That was truly uh, fantastic. I guess the first place to start is, you know, you mentioned the Colombian red and gold. How would you give someone like myself who has never been able to have either, unfortunately, how would you compare and contrast the two? 
Well, um, the Colombian gold, let's start with that. Uh, Colombian gold is a, diver, a really unique high compared to, to other varieties. It's, it's, it's in an own, it's its own um, variety. Uh, the high is mostly in the head. Um, it's clear, um, euphoric, it's psychedelic, colorful, uh, but it doesn't affect the body. So you get a all in the head type of high. Um, the tastes are honeysuckle, astringent, kind of affects the nose, but it's light. It's a light, airy uh, aroma. Uh, when the smugglers went to uh, Santa Marta de Sierra Nevada, uh, the peninsula where all the transshipments were happening, um, the bales that they were getting, they were getting you know, 200, 300 bales of uh, Colombian at a time. The Colombian gold was maybe you know, one bale, maybe two. They had to go to um, farm to farm and they were only able to collect enough for maybe one to two bales, uh, you know, at a time. So it was very rare that people actually had the true uh, Colombian gold. Um, there was varieties that were called Lamona or Lamota. Uh, Lamota means uh, high on a hill and Lamona means the blonde. Those were like the... Uh, Arahio uh, Indians, the Indians that were up in the high Sierra Nevadas, they had a variety of Colombian gold, which was more of a, like a Highland Colombian. And those were more of the longer flowering varieties that were gold, red, purple, um, turned orange and rainbow different colors. Um, and that's the real special stuff. Now there was also lowland Sierra Nevada Colombian gold. And those were the smaller plants also very nice, but not quite as longer flowering as the Highland varieties. So that was kind of uh, the climbing gold. So uh, climbing golds, the, the um, majority of them will turn purple and gold. Um, some rare uh, phenotypes will be red and then uh, rainbow colored. Um, for the opposite side, which is uh, the Colombian Punta Rojos, the Colombian reds, um, those were more of a narcotic high. The, the reason is that um, it has a CBD content in it. So it, it actually has like a, a body effect unlike the Columbian gold. Um, so there's uh, CBG, CBC. Um, I would believe that's probably THCV as well. Delta 8 and 9, THC as well. Um, and then a lot of different... Um, cannabinoids, flavonoids, and uh, uh, anti-cyanins, the things that change the colors of the plants. Uh, as you'll find with the Colombian Punta Rojos, they'll turn red, blue, uh, purple, um, and shades that are more darker, kind of like the Panama Red. A at one time, Panama Red, uh, Panama was part of Colombia. So a lot of the Punta Rojos were actually, you know, uh, the same as Panama Red, but the varieties that are closer to the border with Panama now um, were actually more the jungly types. They were hotter. They dealt with more resin. Uh, they had to deal with the more extremes of the heat because they were more of a jungly type. So when people think of Panama red, it's actually like a Colombian variety. So it's closer to Colombian Punto Rojo. Um, and so it, you get these um, longer, different tie types that are more physical. Um, people actually uh, 
when you had a really good Colombian red thought that the Colombian red high was more, uh, more favorited than the Colombian golds. And the really resinous varieties of Colombian Puto Rojo uh, were what, what people called wacky weed. And those were the very resinous, dusty types that people would, would sell. The resellers would call it wacky weed, but it was Colombian Punto Rojo. Wow. What a comprehensive rundown. I feel like I've learned so much because what's interesting is that the Colombian as a, as a broad umbrella has really come into the zeitgeist because I think that with the advent of the black Cuban haze becoming very popular in the past few years, we hear a lot about the Colombian dominance you see in that cut. And it got me wondering, do you think, do you think Colombian is one of the unsung heroes in Hayes? Because a lot of people, including myself, used to attribute a lot of the magic of Hayes to the tie. But I'm now starting to think more and more, was the Colombian really contributing a lot more than I maybe gave it credit for? Well, there's, there's more than one haze. So you've got to, you got to narrow it down to, is it, um, is it the haze that first came around? The first haze was more Mexican Punto Rojo with the Colombians that were coming around. So um, Mexican and Colombian were more of the uh, composition of what people know as haze. There's old timers haze, which seems to be all Colombian, um, which is not even, not even haze. It's just considered a haze but it's not what people know as haze. So th- those two can be considered confused because they look the same, but they are from com- Colombian genetics. Uh, but what a lot of people believe is the special stuff are the Colombians that are in them. The purple haze is from a Colombian purple variety. So it could be from the Corinto side or from the Colombian Punto Rojo side that you get these purple phenotypes. Also, there's uh, the purple haze from the Colombian Punto Rojo I mean, uh, Colombian um, Santa Marta gold. Uh, so the combination of these different Colombians and the purple phenotypes got what people know as purple haze. Um, later, if you're looking at original haze, uh, that was uh, messed with, with Sam when he went to um, Holland. They added the ties then because what they had for haze was kind of um, lacking. So they added the different hazes and the Kerala and the Vietnamese and different lines. Wow, that's incredible. So just to clarify, if someone said to you, what do you think the original genetics in haze was, what would you answer with? Huh. Well, it's me and Neville used to talk. He was a friend of mine. Um, I never got to meet him in person, but we used to talk um, via Skype. Um, so... I don't want to say anything that would, he was very coy with his answers. Um, he received the seeds in New York um, from some people that were doing the shipments for, you know, they weren't considered, they weren't the, they weren't the people growing the varieties. So these were like the resellers that, that got the seeds, but the seeds that were uh, turned into original haze and Neville's haze, seem to be more like the Molumbity Madness. Wow. Bombshell. But, you know, um, it's hard to tell. What, what you see from some of the pictures and what some of the seed banks had received, some of that stuff seems to be Thai dominant, like uh, the original haze for Flying Dutchman. Some of the earlier stuff seems to be Thai um, dominant. So it's original haze Thai dominant. So... 
you know, was it Sam Sam stuff that was used with the haze that they got and they kind of went from there? Um, or was it, you know, original haze that was previous to that? Um, it's hard to say, but um, it, it seemed the Thai stuff was more uh, original haze later on. But if you look at some of the structures, like Nevis haze, um, some of the phenotypes look like Molumbity madness, which, you know, they're tied derivative. So that would make more sense, I would say, I assume. So but this, if you look at some of the older pictures of the haze and some of uh, the people that were breeding it had said, um, Mexican Punta Rojo was one of the, the, the portions that created haze. And then the Colombians that came along with it, Santa Marta Gold, uh, Colombian Punta Rojo. Um, but I'm growing out all these varieties, trying to uh, derive what exactly was there, trying to recreate what was the magic from those lines, and then trying to make something that is uh, new, but using the best varieties that we have or able to uh, use now. Oh, that's incredible. I don't suppose by any chance you've talked to Bodhi about this. He he kicked that idea around a year or two ago to me. He said someone should recreate haze and just... And he was telling me he had a Vietnam that could work well as the Thai. <laughs> well, actually, Bodhi, uh, Coastal, and I, we've been working on this for the last couple of years, working on our separate parts of it. So this is an idea that we've been thrown together, trying to work towards over these last few years. So we're working together trying to get that uh, to fruition. I'm so stoked to hear that. I he he did tell me that. I sort of didn't want to throw that out there unless you were comfortable with it. So that's that's great. No, no, we're totally comfortable with that. <laughs> it's exciting. I mean, you know, I, I got to chat with a uh, Kegu, and um, he's he's keen as well. But just to loop back to what you said, so do you believe then that uh, Hayes uh, like a two-parter here? Do you believe Hayes has any Indian genetics in it? And as a follow-up, recently we had uh, Gas of Swami on, and he said that um, he suspects the tie that we see in Hayes these days was the squirrel tail. Do you have any thoughts on that? We Okay, so there's... When you think of Hayes, Hayes has got to be um, what was sold by, you know, uh, by Neville and what was done by... Um, previous people in Santa Cruz, but this wasn't, it's not old timers haze. So um, what people think is haze has got to be like original haze. That's, that's haze, but old timers haze is considered a haze, but it's not the same thing. So those are two separate varieties. They're not the same. They may look the same, but they're not the same. If that makes any sense. Um, so the tie, the tie that was in it, uh, squirrel tail, uh, who knows which, which one's squirrel tail. Uh, there's different. There's quite a few different squirrel tail ties. There's quite a few mango ties. There's purple ties. There's highland ties. There's purple highland ties. There's lowland ties. There's uh, golden ties. Um, lemon ties. There's so many different ties. Um, which one could it be? Um, I don't know for sure. But I'm trying to figure that out by growing out all these different ties. Um, squirrel tail is kind of a uh, you know, a, a kind of a broad naming of a lot of these strains. So squirrel's tail is kind of to depict these, these tie varieties that have uh, the, you know, the long colas, colas de zorro, they'd call them in Mexico, you know, the, the foxtails. 
the squirrel tail is kind of like the same thing. So it encompasses a lot of these different tie stick varieties. So it could be a tie stick um, or a squirrel tail. Um, it's kind of encompassing encom- encom- like a, um, a total name for a lot of different ties, but it's not just one specific tie, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So it sounds like Colombian definitely plays a bigger part in it all than what I initially suspected. Do you think that people do see ties with a bit of rose shade glasses and maybe Colombians do deserve a bit more interest? Because that's largely been my experience that people seem to be more interested than in ties than Colombians for the most part. Well, I think uh, ties are very special um, and there's a lot of different ties. So, uh, but a lot of that is nostalgia. You know, a lot of the 60s and 70s, you know, people grew up on sticks. Um, so it, it, there's, there's a lot of nostalgia there. But from the haze portion, um, a lot of what people love about the haze is the purple haze, uh, the colors, and a lot of that has to do with Colombian, majority of it being Colombian. Either all the way Colombian or Mexican Colombian. And then uh, later on, um, they added, you know, Vietnamese and some of the other lines. Yeah, sure. So just to loop back, you mentioned your friendship with Neville, and this is a discussion point fans are always interested to hear more about. Mm-hmm. Gas from Swami uh, said that, you know, he he knows Dwight, and from what he had heard, there's a few sort of, I won't say unreleased Neville strains, but just some, some of his work floating around that never really made it out there. I'd be interested to hear your, you know, sort of recollection on your friendship with him and any interesting sort of discussion points around his work you might be able to share. Uh, well, Neville, he was coy with a lot of his answers. He didn't want to give too much. Um, you know, I asked him directly where a lot of his genetics came from, you know, that he brought over. Um, I kind of theorized that um, the guy who uh, did, um, God, was it Sensimilia Tips out of Oregon? Um, yeah, I, I think his name was Tom. Oh, God, I'd have to. Anyway, Tom Flowers or something like that. No, that can't be it. Something I'd have to go back and get the name, but I, I kind of theorized that some of the stuff that he was working at the magazine, um, he introduced Neville to. So that was a portion of those genetics um, that he received. Um, the other portion of those genetics came from Jim Ortega, uh, the Ortega, Indica, uh, the G13, um, and a lot of other lines. So Jim... Uh, Jim should get a lot of the credit for a lot of the genetics that Neville had because um, a lot of it came from him. Uh, Neville also said that when he did breeding, he thought that anything that was bred to like F4 was pretty much true breeding. Anything past that was kind of being redundant, which I kind of argue with. It just depends on the variety. Yes, certainly. I mean, one of the points we hear discussed a lot was that um, he, he was a guy who, for some people, was someone who was hard to get along with, you know. And a lot of people have sort of resonated with the idea that, for some people, it had to be like a separation of the art and the artist because he uh, burned a lot of bridges and stuff. At the same time, a lot of other people just have sort of straightforward friendships with him. Would you describe your friendship with him as fairly straightforward or was he like a complex guy that he gets described as at times? Um he was definitely complex, but he was also straightforward. I mean, he had, uh, he had sicknesses as well. I mean, we would both have, you know, it, it, problems with, um, 
the disease states. He had uh, a tick-borne uh, disease, kind of like Lyme disease here in the United States. It was a tick-borne um, uh, variety that was attacking his system, um, it, but it was from Australia. Uh, so he was sick uh, with that tick-borne disease, and you know it definitely led to his his poor health and. Um, you know, that was difficult for him to get around and to do things because he was constantly in pain. Um, but uh, he definitely wanted to try to, he was, he wanted to be honest as he could with what he was doing, but, um, you know, some of the business relationships that he got into weren't necessarily thought out, <laughs> you know, he, he, he'd get into it and then, um, realized that some of the people flaked out on him. I won't specify who those people were, but um, anyway, um, yeah, he seemed um, pretty straightforward for the most part, but there's a lot of secrets there that he didn't want people to know. Um, I don't know if people know, but um, Neville, he, he was in Holland because um, his family history was from Holland. So his his family came from Holland, but he went there uh, for treatment um, for, for narcotics, heroin. Um, so he was being treated by the, the Dutch government. And um, after going through treatment, um, the Dutch give money um, for uh, rebuilding their lives. And they could take that to build a business. So Neville took a loan out and created the seed bank with that money um, from the, the treatment program which they didn't really <laughs> like, but, um, you know, that's, he was able to create a business that way. Um, and through his knowledge of fish breeding, um, he was able to use that knowledge for fish breeding into breeding cannabis. And he went searching for different varieties, uh, in Afghanistan and Hungary and different places, trying to get varieties, uh, that he used at the seed bank. And then eventually he went to the United States and got varieties there. Yeah. That's a, a great synopsis. I, um, I've actually heard a few different stories. I suspect yours is correct because you've spoken to him, but I've now heard three or four different animals people say he was a breeder of. I've heard birds, dogs, cats, and now fish. I wonder which one it is. Probably the fish. Fish, it was, that's what he told me, and that made sense. Um, I don't know about the other ones. Fish is definitely what <laughs> he told me. Um, and why would you, uh, you know, fish is kind of a strange thing and, uh, you know, fish multiply and you kind of get the, um, the filarial generations, the F1s, F2s out of it. So it makes sense that he used that, um, for his breeding purposes, you know, he's kind of used, you know, that type of breeding into what he used for plants. Yeah, certainly. And you touched on the seed bank and I wanted to ask you, there's a growing sentiment among the real heads and breeders that I know of that is essentially along the lines of Neville's stock or stock from the seed bank is some of the most consistent slash killer stuff you'll ever get. What's your experience with it? And do you think it, it probably is some of the best gear that was ever available, so to speak? Um, well, no, I don't necessarily think it's the best ever. The, the stuff came, a lot of it came from the United States. So it came from like um, private breeders and growers that were, you know, doing their own breeding practices and then they were brought over and then exposed to the rest of the world. Um, some of the, the earlier stock he was able to get like in Afghanistan uh, was good at first, um, but then it was watered down through Dutch practices of homogenation and early flowering. So these, a lot of people think 
that a lot of Afghani, for instance, are all broad-leafed and they're all fast and, you know, indica-looking plants. They don't realize that the best varieties of Afghani were actually narrow-leaf varieties, and those were like the hash, you know, for hash, um, but they were longer-flowering heirloom varieties. But because in the mid-70s, there was so much um, want for Afghani hashish that they couldn't keep up with production. So back in the in the past, they'd keep you know big wheels of hashish with the family heirlooms and crests uh, imprinted on them. But all those old hashish slabs were you know sold, and then they had nothing left. So what they did was incorporate the heirloom varieties with the the varieties that were along the the sides of the roads, the more the tribal types of hash, the stuff that was faster flowering, not quite as good, but produced a lot of uh, resin. So they incorporated the two, and then it watered down the Afghani uh, genomes, the, the varieties that were people got exposed to after uh, like 77, 76, 77, it started going downhill. Um, the king got ousted um, in, I think, 76, uh, 77, um, King uh, Zaire Shah, but he had maybe 30, 40 years of peace maybe even longer in Afghanistan. And what happened was uh, prior to the Paraquat spring in 1979 in uh, Mexico and in Jamaica, they, the CIA had um, sprayed Paraquat um, on the poppies uh, and the uh, hash producing plants, as well as the food crops in Afghanistan, basically um, ruining their food supply. So basically starving out the people. So um, once they had permission to do that, they left the CIA and the people had nothing else to grow. So they were starving. Their food supplies got ruined by Paraquat. Um, They were sickened by the Paraquat. And so they went back to what sold uh, and grew the fastest, which was cannabis and poppies. So in in a way, we kind of caused, um, you know, the the terrorism and all the stuff that happened later on. Um, Then... Right after that had happened, there was people starving. It caused um, uh, the people to revolt. The, the king was ousted. The cousin went into being power. And then the Soviets um, invaded. And then we know what happened from there. Um, just like the Taliban um, is going back into Afghanistan now and taking control, um, a lot of the varieties that were uh, freed up um, after the United States went in there and started coming available are now going to be disappearing. Uh, same as what happened after the Soviets invaded, those varieties that people were um, able to get and had you know, for many decades and years had able to get these nice, great Afghani varieties. And after that, they weren't able to get these nice heirloom Afghani lines because of um, the invasion of the Soviets. But back to the seed bank, um, I think that all over the world, there's lots of breeders that have been growing these lines, a lot of them from land land races, um, and then developed their own acclimatized stock. Um, Those are the unsung heroes, the the smugglers, uh, the growers, the people that um, went harm's way to gather these varieties. Um, Those those are the people that should be uh, recognized. And a lot of that is... um, not known. So a lot of these heads, um, you know, went through dangerous times. 
uh, of uh, Camp Helicopters in California, which is California Against Marijuana Production. Very, um, very harsh and stringent uh, laws against cannabis. Um, but yeah, uh, there's a lot of unknown people that should get uh, credit for the stuff they did to create some of these varieties and to sustain them. Certainly. We've heard that sentiment before that Neville uh, certainly was standing on the shoulders of giants in what he released and made commercially available. I'd be interested to know, have you been tracking at all um, the the Northern Lights reproductions that have been done by Todd McCormick and CSI slash Matt Riot? Um, It's from Northern Lights Greg, who seems to be the legit source of Northern Lights. Do you have any thoughts on that? Have you seen that? Honestly, I haven't been online, so I don't know what other people are doing. Um, I've heard stuff, um, but I, I don't know what they're claiming or what, what it, you know, I have really nothing to say about it because I don't, I don't know. Um, I remember getting Northern lights in the nineties when it wasn't a seed line. And what I remember from the, the Northern lights that we got, it was a very highly resinous, almost blue, white crystalline, um, herb, uh, very, um, very narcotic, but also made you high, uh, very stony stuff. Uh, but unlike the stuff that, um, was produced by uh, the Dutch later on, that was, you know, sold as Northern lights. Um, so yeah, I don't know what, what, there was a Northern lights variety by classic. And his story is that he, um, he met up with, um, Indian Jim up in Washington on a fishing trip and he was able to get some of the Northern lights from him. So I've grown that Northern Lights, and that one's very strong and um, high quality. Um, so uh, other than that, and the Northern Lights I smoked back in the early 90s, um, the, the Dutch Northern Lights is something different. Um, what other people are growing, I have no idea. I'm not following anybody else, so um, can't really say. I would love to quickly ask you, what's your thoughts on NL5 Haze? Because there has been a notable resurgence among you know, consumers and growers. And I guess more broadly, it often does get given the title of sort of the poster child of cannabis. How did you feel about it? Is it a special one for you or just a more well-known one? It's just a more well-known one. It's, you know, it's a um, a higher yielding, hazy-ish, indica-siva multi-poly hybrid. Um, I think it gets a lot more... um, publicity than it should (laughs) (laughs) there you go well look i mean following on from that i had a number of questions but more importantly the fans had a lot of questions about neville's haze and i guess it speaks to the fact that it is so rare even now you really don't see it going around much and people are aware that you've got a cutting so people were and myself very keen to hear would you be able to give us a bit of a rundown on what your neville's haze cut is like and do you plan to work with it going forward at all well, it's not a cutting. It was a seed line. Um, and the seed line was originally from Mr. Nice. Um, it was bred to um, F3 before I bred it to other things. Um, the phenotype that I chose was um, a large yielding candelabra style. So it had, um, you know, it had some of that northern light structure, but it, it basically the haze, it, the larger plant structure of like the Colombians. So it had some bulk. Uh, but it also contained some of the haziness to it. But it was more like a Mexican um, creating these long, thick bread loaf like colas. 
Um, the smell was incense um, like an Indian Nang Champa, but more rich and um, sweet. Um, it's very um, luxurious and unique. Whenever I bring that, to, when I was supplying herb to the different medical clubs in the early 2000s, um, when I went to the different clubs, I'd you know give samples to the different bud tenders and um, uh, the female bud tenders especially loved that stuff and they always wanted more. It was uh, that good, but it, the haze was almost near perfect. That that Neville's haze, it was you get almost as high as you possibly can. Um, the taste, the smell, the aroma—it's all very, uh, very good. Um, and um, I crossed it to purple tie, uh, so it um, you know gets the purple traits. Um, you know the colors, the the trichomes turn purple. The the resin glands, the trichomes are all you know got some colors to them. Um, and that adds a different type of um, flavonoid and, um, you know, turpin profile than the regular Neville's Haze by itself. It makes it a little bit more complex. Um, but um, it, it's it's a great and wonderful plant, uh, for sure. Uh, the other Neville's Hazes that I've grown, um, those ones seem to be more sparse, um, you know, very nice, um, but more hazy-ish. But um, the, the one that I use is more of a, a larger yielding, but also retains all the best qualities that you'd want. So like a large yielding haze. It's like what you want um, as far as yields and buds and the, the density in a modern variety, but with all the qualities of like the longest flowering hazes, almost, <laughs> if that makes any sense. That's amazing. While you brought it up, I guess I'll quickly touch on it. I also noted that you had the Oregon purple tie. Is that correct? Um, no, I didn't have Oregon purple tie. Uh, I have a chocolate tie that I believe um, was the source of what created um, the Oregon purple tie, which is um, a Highland um, Oaxacan gold and the chocolate tie to create the Oregon purple tie. Except uh, the chocolate tie doesn't have any of the mutations and weird shit that's, uh, sorry, weird stuff that's associated with Oregon purple tie. Um, so it's got the colors, it's got the, um, the highs, um, everything that uh, you like about flow, blueberry. Um, I believe a, lot, a majority of that comes from that chocolate tie, which um, I believe is a purple tie. Um, but we haven't gotten there to verify it. So I believe that is, um, you know, the root stock of Oregon purple tie. And I've bred that into some varieties. Um, I've released a little bit of it um, so far, um, but I lost the mother, uh, unfortunately, uh, during my aunt's funeral um, this last Christmas. Um, I have a little bit of the seed stock left. I'm going to try to revive, but what I've bred into it is still still available. Uh, so, um, there will be some magic still, and then I'm working with other chocolate ties, but, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's definitely a special line. That's fantastic. Thanks for the clarification. And I guess as a follow-up, I noticed you've got the blueberry blast, which, you know, really cool strain. It's got the blueberry and the Neville's haze in there. I guess I was sort of wondering, how would you describe that one? Like, how did it turn out? It sounds like it could be like a better version of Blue Dream to me. And as a follow-up, what's your thoughts on the Blueberry family in general? Are you fond of it or, you know, it's just sort of one of the things for you? 
Uh, well, where to start? Uh, let's start on the uh, the Blueberry Blast. So I, I made the Blueberry Blast um, when I was supplying the medical clubs in um, Southern California. We were growing in Northern California. Um, um, our, our, our family farm is in the Emerald Triangle area. Um, so I was able to see what was selling in the medical clubs. And one of them was Blue Dream. Um, so I was, this is before I got famous. Uh, so I went to, you know, where I was growing and found the different cuts that were going. There was two different cuts um, of Blue Dream. And then I grew those commercially uh, that same year. Um, and this is before most people knew about Blue Dream. Um, so I bred two versions of it called Pipe Dream and Blueberry Blast. Um, the narrow leaf, more hazy version, um, Blue Dream, uh, was bred into the Pipe Dream. And the male uh, for that was the Acapulco Gold C99 male. Uh, the Blueberry Blast had the Johnny Blaze, which is Neville's Haze and Blueberry. Um, it was slightly larger yielding, that blue dream. Uh, the leaves were a little bit more broader, not by much. Um, resin production was a little bit more on the, the, the narrow leaf one for the pipe dream, um, but they were both awesome and very close in um, effects and yields. Um, the quality of the, the pipe dream was just slightly better in my opinion. Uh, I liked it more uh, than the one I used for the Blueberry Blast, but the Blueberry Blast was my version of a commercial <laughs> commercial variety. Um, it was uh, the best Blue Dream at the time and, um, you know, basically trying to make it better. So there, there's quite a few phenotypes. Most of them are larger yielding. Some of them are more hazy, uh, but you can have a seven-week Blueberry Blast uh, for some of the faster phenotypes, and then you can have one that goes to 14 to 16 weeks for some of the longer. But um, all of them are super resinous, have that blueberry, cedar, uh, wood aroma, um, very luscious and tasty. Um, the effect is kind of like strawberry cough. It's got that original haze type high. Um, so you get really high for a few hours, and then um, it allow you to eat munchies or eat if you like and sleep if you want in a nice dreamful restful state. So it's kind of like a all encompassing high, and, you know, it kind of lets you go up and then takes you down if you need to do what you need to do and, and be restful because some uh, hazes and sativas kind of will keep you amped for a while and it can be tiring. It can kind of wear you out, but that kind of allows you to do what you need to do uh, when you want to. Yeah, beautiful stuff. And what's your thoughts on the sort of work by DJ in general? I guess I'll preface this that I noticed you you do the Grape Crush F3. So I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on that one. I, I guess you're fond of it. Oh, the Grape Crush is uh, awesome. Uh, beautiful line. Very strong. Um, has some mutants, as a lot of the, the DJ stuff does. Um, but, it, you know, keeps it interesting. Um, you know, it's very strong, potent. Um, you know, smaller yielding indica um, breeds well with other lines. I made some very powerful uh, varieties uh, breeding with it. Uh, very tasty. Uh, some phenotypes are better than others. Um, yeah. Um, the blueberry lines, a lot of the stuff is, um, it was better at one point than it is now, it seems. Uh, some of the genetics were more pure at that point. I think it's kind of, 
something's changed over the time. And I think uh, DJ has said it was the Afghanis were kind of added more into it. I mean, it kind of seems more evident with like the flow, the flow seemed to be more um, Mexican, um, uh, more Mexican in yield and percentages than it is nowadays. Now you get more of an Afghani um, centric type of variety with a lot of these uh, flow and, and blueberry types. Uh, the blueberry that I had back in 97 was super tasty, flavorful. Um, the stuff now is also very flavorful, but um, the, the phenotypes are kind of all over the place. But, um, you know, awesome stuff, you know, good breeding. Um, well, if you're looking for specific plants to grow, they're great. Breeding can be a little odd because of um, the multi-poly hybrid um, aspects of the lines in general. I mean, while we're sort of talking about strains of yesteryear, I'd love to quickly ask you, you know, were there any a notable one for that we hear a lot on the show is like the SSSC. Did they ever put out any notable things for you or were there any other brands from around that time that really stick out in your mind as quite memorable? Well, SSSC, um, well, I, I got to know from, uh, one of the people that did the shipping for SSSC and some of the strains that he was growing, uh, SSSC Super Sativa Seed Club had incorporated in their lines. So the what's known as Williams Wonder was actually my friend's strain. And um, I, I don't want to say where he's from, but he's from the United States. Um, and um, his name was also my name. Uh, but the other name for uh, John is William. So Williams Wonder was one of his strains. Um, the Hawaiians were also associated with my friend um, and some of the other varieties uh, as well, Hooser, Hoot, and Holler. Um, so just like um, him, you know, he was able to incorporate to what a lot of people loved about uh, SSSC, just like Neville, you know, got stuff from other people um, and shared it with the rest of the world. So uh, he should be noted as being you know something that people uh, got something really that they enjoyed from this individual um, some of the the varieties from ssc uh, were the same as the seed banks um, basic five was the neville's uh, sorry the uh, northern lights number five uh, the basic five skunk was like uh, skunk northern lights crosses or like shiva skunk so a lot of the stuff was just renamed, but some of the same cuttings that were available to um, um, to the seed bank and SSSC in Holland at the time. Um, the what people had known as the um, Pine Town Durban. Uh, Pine Town is actually a town in or a little uh, district in Durban. So it's not a piney uh, Durban. It's just from that part of uh, Durban in uh, South Africa. Uh, a lot of people, uh, there's the South African um, crosses. The South African is the Durban um, in those crosses. Okay. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't say that, but it says South African, but the South African is actually the Durban. Uh, it doesn't say on the description, but if you see South African, it's Durban and then whatever the cross is. Ah, there you go. And a lot of people speculate that the common Durban cuttings floating around the USA at the moment, the notable ones, 
have maybe some Afghan crossed into them. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I know a lot of the Dutch ones definitely seem uh, like they have skunk to them. Uh, the ones that are in the United States, I don't know. Um, um, there was um, Durban that was uh, associated with one of the uh, guys that did some of the cannabis books. Um, it wasn't Rosenthal. It was um, the other gentleman. The name uh, is escaping me at the moment. And this is a, an older gentleman. Um, Mel Frank? Uh, Mel Frank, yeah. Mel actually went to um, Durban and brought back some seeds. So a lot of what people got, one of the stock that was released as like Durban, and then I think some of the seed banks in, in Holland got was his Durban poison. But what a, a lot of uh, some of the growers were growing in Mendocino was different versions uh, his Durban poison. Yeah. So a, a lot of what, what people see are these little stocky uh, Durban poisons. That's kind of like from his stock. But Durban poison is actually a hybrid of um, some of the Bantu tribe um, that came from Northern Africa down to South Africa to Swaziland and um, Kwasi the Zulu nation. Um, and then the uh, uh, East the the eastern cape um tribes those varieties got mixed in with what was um later came in from the indentured indian servants uh, in the 1800s from mostly south um south india from like kerala orissa um, andhra pradesh and then a small percentage from himal pradesh in the northern indian area but majority of the indians that were indentured servants basically um you know, slaves, but um, were moved from South India to work the sugar plantations after they freed the um, the black slaves. This also happened in the West Indies and in like Jamaica. The indentured servants came uh, to work the sugar plantations, and that's where you get some of the Jamaican varieties, which were um, Indian and uh, Mexican, and then later on were Indian Colombian. Mm, interesting. Uh, but Durban poison is a combination of uh, African and uh, South Indian. Uh, that's why some of them were more compact and bushy, and then other ones were more taller, like a Malawi um, or some Malawi. But um, that, there's, there's definitely some variations with the Durban poisons. It's not just one variety. And that's why I think a lot of people um, mis misunderstand. It's not just, uh, it's an heirloom land race now, but it's acclimatized over a period of time due to two peoples uh, coming together. Um, Lesotho is a version of the same thing going on where it's like um, Bantu tribes mixed with um, North Indian because some of the, um, the, the Lesotho varieties are very stony and physical. So it makes more sense that that hybridization is a combination of the two. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And I mean, you just mentioned, you know, the Indian genetics. Why do you think they're so sort of underrepresented compared to a lot of other land races? Do you think they've got something to offer that a lot of people might be overlooking? Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of varieties in India. Uh, they were growing canvas for many, many years um, um, for the people, for food purposes, for medicine, um, so yeah, uh, there's definitely a lot of stuff underrepresented. Um, 
why it's not getting the notorious, like, uh, you know, um, the highlights like other varieties. Um, uh, it all depends. Maybe it's been uh, watered down by mixing up so many varieties. Um, you know, uh, some of the uh, Indian varieties, you know, they, they create a lot of hashish from it. So it's hard to to like uh, see the different varieties from one another. Um, you know, some of the Colombians are more, uh, you know, colorful as far as standing out as a sativa. So maybe people will see the Colombians standing out more so, uh, like with a haze. Um, the, the Indians, I think, um, don't get the credit they, they need to. There's such a wide uh, area of growth in geographical um, people. So there's so many different people. Uh, such a long history. Um, they had the, what it was called Soma, which was, you know, the sacred uh, cannabis. Now, just like the Persians had Heoma, the Zoroastrian religion, um, pre, you know, Afghan area. Um, but, you know, what was once uh, an uh, area of long cannabis history um, has been, you know, separated by religion. So a lot of what was India previous to like the 1950s was, you know, where Pakistan is now at Bangladesh, um, all that, what is India was all of that um, previous to that point, um, just, you know, a mix of different peoples. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that should be revived and a lot of that knowledge um you know, should be explored more, a lot of different varieties. And I think there's some good people uh, from the Indian Land Race Exchange, um, iRaising, and some other people that are trying to uh, put some more focus on these varieties and these farmers that should be supported. Because a lot of these people are starving, you know, they're not getting much for their cannabis. Um, they're not getting much to live on in general. Um, so I, I think a lot of governments should support these people, these uh, histories of these cannabis varieties because it's not only uh, you know uh, a history of these people the cannabis is kind of like um, a sociological social history it's um, it's something that they can grow that's also a history of those people it's knowledge it passed down from you know father to son to mother to daughter um, and should be treasured and there's so much history there that we just haven't been able to um, let the rest of the world know and hopefully um, with time, we can kind of uh, show people more of what's out there. Most certainly, definitely need to have more attention placed on the indigenous farmers and supporting them. I guess you, you sort of touched on the farmers and a conversation I've been having more so with friends in private sort of goes along the lines of, is what we're doing with modern cannabis breeding really that good compared to what the indigenous farmers were doing because it seems as if we're losing a lot of the special stuff and a lot of people complain about how there's this sort of same everything has this same quality you know everything in the dispensary sort of feels about the same what's your thoughts on this it's obviously a deep philosophical rabbit hole to jump down but i'd love to hear your take well i don't think it's it's that difficult i think a lot of what people uh, are growing and are exposed to our what was created from the seed banks. So a lot of the seed banks were Northern Lights, Skunk, 
Um, and then that was incorporated into almost everything. So everything's a skunk, Afghani, uh, Northern Lights type high, but only from certain varieties. The Afghani varieties that the Dutch were growing, I hate to pick on the Dutch, but this is what was happening, to grow varieties that would be more conducive to indoor flowering, they selected plants that would finish fast, um, would be more homogenous, meaning they would um, flower and then the whole plant would flower at one time instead of flowering and, you know, uh, stages. Um, so when you pick plants that are early flowering and, um, you know, and homogenous, um, you're actually selecting the qualities uh, that aren't as potent. I mean, you could if you get lucky, but when you pick out varieties that aren't disease resistant, um, aren't for potency, aren't for quality, you're losing the best parts of the plant. So you're watering them down. So unfortunately, they were watering down the genetics um, to fit a need because of um, the illegal state of cannabis that's been happening since the 1930s. Um, you know, cannabis was illegal, so they had to go indoors for the most part. So they were breeding varieties that would go grow indoors easily for people. So the Dutch were doing this as a convenience, which made sense. But unfortunately, um, they watered down a lot of the genetics. And another thing that happened was the genetic stocks that they had were great. But as they were trying to keep germination, fresh seed available to the customers, they were killing off or destroying their old seed stock. The problem was as they were watering down their varieties for fast maturing, you know, homogenous plants, they couldn't go back to their old seed stock because they destroyed it because we were trying to keep up and keep fresh seed stock. So the only thing that they had were these old clones, um, but the seed stock wasn't something they could go back to unless they had, you know, long-term storage or something they could, but they destroyed a lot of genetic um, germplasm unfortunately. And that's why, you know, they're searching around the world for new varieties or old varieties that uh, farmers were growing in the United States around the world, Australia, or different countries now because of what happened with the poor breeding practices. So breeding for potency and quality is what I do foremost. Everything else you can narrow down. You can pick for faster flowering plants out of those. Once you've acquired something that's strong, it has the qualities you want, you know, colors, taste, aroma, all that stuff can be fixed. But if you got a weak plant that doesn't have the qualities uh, that, you know, make it unique, then it's not special. So uh, the majority of what people are growing out there are fast growing, you know, great for production, you know, great for a farmer. Uh, but the people that are smoking it are getting the, the end result of what is good for the farmer, but not good for the grow uh, for the smoker. So uh, people, if they want these higher quality strains, should ask, um, you know, breeding practices to evolve where some of the better, higher quality plants are made to yield more. And then um, also request you're getting paying uh, the farmers more for something that may take longer to grow, um, but has a higher quality uh, that these smokers would like to enjoy because there's so much more out there that's possible, um, but they're just not being able or being exposed to it because um, the lack of availability and the lack of uh, commercial uh, growers growing these varieties because they just don't yield as much. So if you have a plant that yields 
five pounds and another plant that yields a couple ounces, you're going to grow the, the plant that grows five pounds because even if you sell it super cheap, you're still getting a lot more money for the farmer. So the farmer's just thinking, you know, apples and oranges. They're growing these things because they're trying to sell them. You know, they're trying to make money. But it, it, it doesn't make any sense for a farmer to grow something that barely yields anything if they're not going to get much for it. So that's an unfortunate reason why people aren't getting exposed to these varieties um, because it's just not worth the farmer's time because the smokers aren't paying for that extra time uh, spent to grow these varieties, which take longer and don't yield as much. Uh, eventually, some of these strains, you can get the higher yielding um, plants with the higher qualities, uh, like I try to incorporate with some of my varieties. Um, but sometimes you just need to spend the extra time to grow them because uh, people are missing out on the best quality highs and experiences. Uh, and if you grew up on cushes and indicas, you may have not ever gotten high. You've just been stoned. And people just don't understand that high. You don't understand that you can get happy and giggly and, uh, you know, laugh yourself into fits and, you know, laugh so hard that your, your stomach hurts and you start spitting up. And uh, it's, it's a great, wonderful experience. And there's so many different highs that give you happiness and euphoria and colors. And um, there's a lot of magic out there. And just most people haven't been able to experience that, unfortunately. You mentioned it yourself just then that you've tried to breed some strains that have that high quality and the increased yield to accompany it. For all the listeners out there whose ears have perked up, do you want to throw some recommendations out there? What of your strains fit that bill for, if for anyone who's keen to try? Uh, well, one of them would be uh, the Dragon's Fire. It's um, mostly Thai Hawaiian, uh, but it's got the longer flowering Thai highs, um, but with uh, more of a Hawaiian... Um, modern resin profile. So you get the larger yields and resin from like a modern variety. So you get the yields and looks that everybody wants and smells and tastes. So it smells tasty, wonderful, like pineapple, fruit, tropical fruits, but you get these wonderful soaring highs, euphoric energy um, that just makes you happy, uh, unlike many other varieties. So that'd be one. Um, but there are so many that um, I could mention. Blueberry Blast was a good one, uh, though I have to. Um, remake the variety because I'm sold out. But that was another connoisseur commercial variety. It yielded very well. Um, it was great for growers and it was great for smokers. So it was kind of all encompassing. Uh, there's many varieties like that, but there's also for the, like the true connoisseur, um, you know, you get these modern resin profiles, but with the, um, the longer flowering highs associated with, you know, ties, Colombians, that sort of thing. Wow, that sounds really special. I mean, uh, a few questions back. You referenced the Acapulco Gold C99 male, and I, and I noticed that you use that quite a bit. Do those crosses also fit the bill in a sense because they seem like, you know, fun, uplifting sativa? Do they have the yield as well, or are they more for a different sort of cross? Actually, a lot of those were for, um, you know, commercial purposes. So you get a higher quality, um, commercial, viable, uh, but with the highs that people want. So yes, yeah, so the C99 um, Acapulco Gold uh, varieties were more of a more of a trying to get people to uh, try out some of these lines, but with um, a semi-moderate flowering period. So it's fast enough for many people, but um, takes a little bit longer than some. 
but you get high quality, um, unlike a lot of varieties. So you don't get the same um, generic high. Yeah, sure. That sounds like a great sort of middle ground. You've touched on it a bit, and I'd love to delve deeper into it. There's a lot of discussion currently around what is it that actually causes us to perceive something as an indica versus a sativa. And I've heard people more recently say, oh, it's it's all the terpenes. But I remembered having a discussion with Bodhi, I believe it was, and he said to me, I've got this Afghani that smells like this tie I've got. And they both test at like, you know, about the same, like let's say they both test at 20% and they both smell the same. But one's clearly indica and one's clearly sativa. And it got me thinking like, yeah, like what really is it? Because I'm not so sold it's terpenes, but I'd love to hear more and be educated. Well, uh, a lot of people, they they call multi-polyhybrids sativas when they have an up high. Um, And they call indicas uh, that have narcotic stony high, you know, stony effects, um, you know, indica. Um, The truth is, that the nomenclature, the, the names for all this stuff is kind of all over the place. Uh, a sativa would typically be like a tropical or equatorial variety, um, but it doesn't have to be because there's microclimates everywhere. So like in Afghanistan, there's also sativas. Uh, there's narrow leaf varieties. Um, they have the up highs, uh, but you can also have a sativa that has a narcotic effect. Um, so, you know, it, it depends. Are people calling the sativa because it's got narrow leaves in a, you know, um, a upright, you know, smaller um, flower set um, with an up high a sativa? But if it has a narcotic effect, is that an indica or is it a sativa? It's still a sativa, but it's got a narcotic effect. So um, the chemotypes associated with a lot of these varieties. Um, basically a lot of this stuff should be renamed and indica should be anything that should be from India, you know, indica, India, but um, there should be hash plants. There should be equatorials. There should be tropicals. Um, There should be jungle varieties. There should be um, highland. There should be lowland Um, more of the environment that's associated with and the type of plant it is. Is it a hash plant or is it a ganja plant? Is it something that you smoke for flowers or is it something that you harvest for hash? Or is it a hash-like plant? Um, so indica sativa, um, you know, it's kind of too broad. And people use it for, you know, they say OG Kush is a sativa because it's got kind of up high. Well, obviously it's uh, an indica, but, you know, just because it has up high doesn't mean it's a sativa. Clear as mud. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think as, the, you know, the extension of that... What do you think is the mechanism through which it's different? You know, do you think there's maybe some yet to be characterized molecules and like if they're there, they give you that more uplifting effect or how do you think it plays out? Because it seems like a lot of the current speculation is sort of yet to be proven, I guess. Well, there's a lot of unknowns in cannabis. Mostly of what people have been studying is the cannabinoids and the terpenes, the primary terpenes. But there's also long chain terpene profiles. So there's these things that insects ward off against because um, the plant is giving off um, a turpin profile that is like a pesticide. Um, also, it um, you know acts as like a hormone for humans, but for the plant species. 
Um, so there's these unknown turpin profiles that um, we have yet to record all of them. So we don't even know all that are out there. So we need to identify them and then we need to identify what their properties are because they work with the primary turpins to have the tertiary effect. You know, they add, they go with the cannabinoids and the primary turpins to add to the overall um, effects. There's also these flavonoids um, that, you know, cause colors and these cause effects and uh, the effects on a uh, nerve um, can result in that nerve firing um, for a longer period of time or shorter period of time. Think of a sine wave, you know, those things you see on like an EKG that, you know, goes straight and then it goes up and then goes down. That is, uh, let's just say, a nerve firing. So we have um, THC for one. It fires uh, off at a certain height. Well, you add uh, another cannabinoid like CBG and that height actually goes even higher. Well, you put CBD in that, and that same uh, two molecules might go lower, uh, but it might extend the duration of it, so it, it lasts longer. So you have the same effect, but longer, or you have the same effect, but not as high, but longer or shorter. So these things that add uh, to these cannabinoids, these different components, either can make the high more potent or less potent or make it longer duration or shorter duration. Um, it could also cause effects that give you like a soaring effect or a uh, heightened uh, color effect or um, you know, sensation that is more uh, associated with your hearing, you know, affects your hearing. Um, so the cannabinoids uh, affect the nerves by um, either directly um, attaching themselves and um, you know, making it more potent, stronger duration, lower duration, higher duration. Um, uh, it, it, it's all these different effects that need to be cataloged and what they, the uses in, in they do. Um, so as far as the effects of like indica sativa, a lot of the, the basic information is um, you can have a Colombian gold or you have like Acapulco gold. Uh, these don't have a CBD in them. They have THC, a lot, sometimes THCV if they're from like Thailand or South Africa, um, some from Colombia, um, or they have CBG, CBC, uh, but there's no CBD. Or if there is, it's super small amount. Though you can have something like uh, Panama Red or Colombian Punta Rojo that has CBD, uh, but is also considered like a sativa. So you get these narcotic effects mixed with the high sativa effects, um, but in a different way than, a, say, a hash plant that has uh, more of a narcotic effect, so more CBN. So high CBD and high CBN um, tend to give you the narcotic effects. Um, lacking CBD with these other cannabinoids give you the what people you know, feel as a sativa effect. Yeah, brilliant stuff there. I'm going to have to go re-listen to that myself and I'm sure the listeners will as well. In terms of a sort of slightly adjacent topic, 
I've spoken to DJ Short and many others about this, but I'd be interested to hear your take on what causes modern strains to have a ceiling. You know, you can only get so high, and if you keep smoking, you sort of don't go anywhere else. But with a lot of the land races, particularly the sativas, you can sort of just keep going and going. What What do you think causes that ceiling? Well, the, the ce- ceiling is CBD, typically. So CBD can be used if, say, uh, you're freaking out or your friend's freaking out and or you've taken edibles and um, you're just too high. Uh, taking doses of CBD will m- modulate the the high effect. So the uncomfortableness that you get from too much THC can be um, brought down with higher amounts of CBD. So it'll bind to the THC and kind of get you out of that, um, you know, at least bring you down to a more comfortable state. So higher amounts of CBD will kind of help with that. Um, for the ceilingless highs that seem to take you higher and higher, those strains seem to have no CBD or very little CBD. Um, also, there's also, uh, you know, cannabinoids that are in higher amounts, like CBG, uh, CBG varieties with THC seem to um, potentiate, make the THC more potent. So, um, you know, higher amounts of CBG with the THC, along with THCV, you get even more expressions. Like Malawi varieties have the THCV, so you get more of this rushing waves of euphoria, and seems like there's no ceiling as you smoke more. Um, basically. You smoke a little bit and you can't physically smoke too much because you're just so high um, because you, you keep going higher and higher. But if you had CBD in that, you could kind of counteract the uncomfortableness of the high THC in your body and um, it'll bring you down, if that makes any sense. Yeah, certainly. So I guess I'm wondering then, do you think that we like, you know, a lot of these modern strains have some amount of CBD in them that sort of unknowingly is limiting us. Absolutely. Yeah. Most of what people are smoking has CBD in some concentration or, um, you know, that's, that's mainly what is in a lot of these. It's a, it's a multi-poly hybrid with CBD in almost all of them. Yeah. Great. Some good food for thought. So let's go back to one of the questions we normally start the interview off with. What have you been smoking on recently? Um, chocolate Thai, um, some Mexican varieties like uh, Mutual Con, Verde de Limon, um, my uh, Devil's Skunk, um, Devil's Tit, uh, which is uh, Durban Poison Acapulco Gold C99. It's a wonderful strain, super potent, wonderful taste, um, and it can be absolutely too potent. <laughs> Concentrates <laughs> will freak you out. Uh, I remember taking uh, two hits at the Emerald Cup, and I was in a fetal position for several hours, uh, just hoping for uh, <laughs> for myself to come down. It was, uh, yeah, it was very uncomfortable for quite a while. But that was from concentrates made from the Devil's Tit, uh, which I tried to get um, judged that year, but all my samples for some reason never got judged. So that was the last time I had any samples in the Emerald Cup. Ah, very interesting to hear that. And uh, I love the idea that being in the fetal position, it's so potent. It sounds up my alley. I noticed online that the Devil's Tit, as well as the Purple Pantera, some of the more popular lines that popped up a lot on the various forums. What was interesting to me was that, you know, given the diversity of the genetics you work with, do you ever feel like you can predict the winners or what's going to be the fan favorite? Or is it really just a bit up in the air? 
you know, it all depends. Like, um, we, the one year we entered in the purple pineapple bomb, which is pineapple tie and grape crush. It tastes good. It tastes wonderful. It's got a great high and people love it. But the thing is, it wasn't our most potent. It wasn't the thing we we're most proud of. So sometimes it just depends. Sometimes if, if something is familiar to people, but different enough uh, to go, hey, wow, this is, this is actually quite good. Um, those usually seem to be the ones that people um, gravitate to. So it's got to be something familiar. You know, it has that modern profile, it has the colors and looks that people want, that smell, you know, and then amazing high to go along with it. So it's not always the most potent, the most uh, unique, um, the best in my eyes, but, you know, people dislike something that's familiar as well. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, on the other end of the spectrum, so to speak, I noticed that the railgun seems like such a super fun mix of, like, genetics, like a sativa lover's party. And along with that came quite a hefty 100-plus day flower time. It got me wondering... Do these sort of strains ever get out there that much, or is it really quite difficult to find people willing to run it? Actually, some of these strains um, were created in like testing rounds where I was growing for different varieties, and then we grow them out. And um, you know, I, initially I didn't make a lot of seed because you know we're testing out these varieties. Um, so what people get out out there is not too much there's just, there's just not a lot available because um of the breeding practices because a lot of preservation was being done um which takes a lot of time you know you're spending a year and a half on one strain trying to do selections and preserve it um you don't get a lot of time to create other varieties um so you know um there's some of these strains there's just not a lot uh, available for people to grow uh, so I'm trying to work out the stuff that's more popular. I'm trying to go back to those and do um, larger selections, um, you know, for people so they can get exposed to these varieties, which are quite good, like the Devil's Tit, the Dragon's Fire, the West Coast Purple Diesel, uh, Blueberry Blast. Just, you know, try to make stuff available to people that this is wonderful. Um, and there's a lot of varieties that I've made that just knock people's socks off, but I just need to go back and, you know, make more of it available to people. Yeah, God, I can only imagine you've got such a catalog of work. It's really cool to see. Out of curiosity, I, I, look, I'm going to be a stickler here. I'm really keen on the railgun. Can you tell me what it's like? <laughs> uh, railgun is trippy, uh, very, um, God, it's uh, very Thai dominant. It's got the Zamal in it, which has got, you know, like South Indian flavors and, and highs. Um, it's very psychedelic. Um can be noise inducing where you can kind of get panic attacks but it's also it's very very euphoric and very desirable it's a uh, it's kind of like walking the edge of being super uncomfortable but really high and really flying high and being in a, a, a like a roller coaster dream it's it's really good but um it's kind of hard to deal with but um yeah it, it's 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 really tasty and the, the flowers are actually pretty um dense um due to the Angola red tie, purple tie uh, male, it kind of gives you nice, good flowers that yield well, but also retaining a lot of those long flowering um, uh, highs from the Zamal lines. Yeah, nice. And did you ever try the Zamal in its pure form? It's It's got a bit of a, cr a cult following to it, that's for sure. 
there's there's quite a few uh three to five different zamal varieties um they're all kind of uh, you know malay uh thai in indonesia like indonesian um indian south indian um derived but it's a french island so there, there's a lot of variability depending on what part of the island it's from but yeah the the zamal by itself is really trippy it's hard to grow seeds are hard to germinate uh for some reason they seem to um lose viability quite quick, quite quickly. Uh, so it's hard to keep around. So you got to renew and refresh the stock quite often. Oh, wow. That's an interesting trait you really don't hear about very much. Well, some, some varieties will last longer. I think it's due to the seed coats. Some of them are more dense and seem to, um, you know, allow the seed to uh, last longer. Uh, but other ones will be more shallow, less, um, you know, um, density to it. Uh, smaller, um, and they just seem like they they dry out quicker, or they just are more susceptible to heat, and um, they just lose viability a lot faster than others. You got me curious now. Two parter. How do you store your seeds, and how do you germinate them? Uh, for storage, for what people get, uh, it's a cool, dry place. That's what people are flying. If you store in a refrigerator, um, whenever you take it out of the refrigerator, you need to germinate those right away. Um, if you don't, the moisture that seems to come from the, the refrigerator um, will actually um, make them unviable quite quickly. So if you refrigerate anything, you can keep them in there for quite a while. You want to try to um, not use desiccants because desiccants um, will work for a while, but after a period of time, they will um, go bad and actually pull more moisture into where those seeds are being kept, um, fouling the seeds. Um, but if you use a refrigerator, once you remove from the refrigerator, you want to put them right back as soon as possible. Um, but if they're out with, you know, for more than an hour or so, uh, then you would want to germinate them as soon as possible because uh, they, they'll lose viability quite quickly. Uh, there's also long-term storage for like uh, varieties that you want to keep for a long period of time. You have to freeze them and they need to be wrapped uh, within, you know, glass vials, within rice, within uh, coffee containers. And then frozen, and you want to make sure those uh, are thawed out, um, but don't retain moisture as you're thawing them out because that moisture will um, cause issues with the seeds. Um, but the majority of what people get is from a cool, dry place. Uh, germination. Um, now I I am recommending what's called uh, chemical scarification. Um, basically, you use hydrogen peroxide, three percent with water, fifty fifty. So uh, most of the stuff you buy at the stores, at least in the United States, is 3% hydrogen peroxide. You mix it 50-50 with um, tap water. Tap water in the United States has some um, bleaching agents, which is good because it's a disinfectant. Uh, the hydrogen peroxide is a disinfectant, so you could also use you know, bottled water or whatever you want to use water. But the idea is you want something that will disinfect. The hydrogen peroxide will help soften the shells of the seeds causing what they call scarification. So it softens it and also disinfects it because um, the sources that people are getting these seeds from, especially if they're from outside um, their country, if they're from outside the country, I would recommend freezing whatever seeds you get at least overnight and then defrosting them and make sure they, they dry out within, without any moisture. If you freeze the seeds, you're killing the eggs, the larvae, and any live adults um, that maybe. Uh, coming along for the ride with your seeds. Um, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of the 
critters and stuff that they're getting are from seeds they're getting from outside the country. And these could destroy your plants. They could, um, you know, uh, eat up all your seeds. You know, within a period of time, you'll find little um, webbing inside the seeds and they'll be eaten from the inside out as they, you know, devour your priceless seeds. Uh, so freezing it is a good way of killing them. And then you can store them for whatever period of time you want. Um, germination, once you've done the um, chemical scarification, you want to wash with tap water or bottled water. Uh, you know, running water is usually best. And then you dry them off. Uh, I recommend using a paper towel with tap water um, and then checking on the seeds with a moist paper towel wrapped um, and folded and then placed inside a sealed baggie. And you can place that in a cool, dry place or with a heating mat. Um, and you check on the seeds maybe every eight hours until uh, germination. Now, you want to make sure that you wash your hands with soap and water. Don't touch your face or your body because there's bacteria, there's different um, um, uh, funguses that could be um, incorporated from your body, and then you can contaminate your seeds so they'll mold. Um, and if you use a heating mat, I recommend only using it for maybe 24 hours to 48 hours. That's it. Uh, because the heat and moisture will cause mold over a period of time. So um, heat will help um, push along the germination process. It helps, um, but I would quit using that after a couple of days. There's also some heating uh, mats that you can adjust and use a lower um, uh, heat setting. And if you have one that you can, has adjustable setting, then you could use lower heat and use it for a longer period of time. But if you have a heating mat that you just plug in, and you have no uh, ab ability to adjust the heat, then I would use it for more than 24 to 48 hours tops. Um, but checking on it every four, eight hours, your seeds until they germinate um, up to three days. So after three days, I recommend um, using a fingernail or um, maybe something uh, to open up the seed cases and then uh, removing the film that's around the embryo of the seed and then sowing the seeds in a sterilized um, soil starter soil. Um, I use um, a soilless medium or a medium that's been sterilized. Um, and sterilization is, um, I recommend something for starting seeds because uh, of what's called damp off. Um, these seeds or seedlings um, are not, or haven't built resistance yet to... Um, fungus and bacteria that are in the soil that is great for you know growing plants but if these plants haven't built the resistance to them yet they will um they will cause damp off and they'll die so a lot of people are killing their seeds and don't realize it because they're using recycled soil or they're using bag soil that's been opened you know several times which has uh, created a you know fungal development which isn't great for these seedlings and uh, seed embryos um, an easy way of sterilizing your soil is taking your medium and placing it in a turkey bag or oven bag and then um, moistening the, the, the soil, um, not so it's soaking wet, but so it's moist um, and damp. And then basically put in a microwave for uh, two minutes and you do this uh, three to four times. And then on the fourth time you do, you seal the bag with uh, the little zip tie that comes along with it. Uh, the moisture that's in the bag will steam and uh, sterilize the soil. And that last uh, zap of the microwave is uh, three to four minutes. You got to kind of estimate or guesstimate it uh, due to the strengths of the microwaves. But that steam will help kill any of the harmful pathogens in the soil. Uh, the good stuff will come back within a minute or two. So you're not destroying um, what's in the soil for a long period of time. You're just killing the bad stuff. 
And that's what you want to use for, um, you know, uh, seed starting or for a seedling transplants or planting plants in general, because you know, there's nothing bad in it at the time. Um, and then um, you sow the seeds. Basically, I like to use uh, natural light to begin with. And then once they've uh, come above the ground, then I use uh, T5 fluorescence and uh, basically um, veg them uh, until you're ready to transplant them to beer cups. And then you veg them with, um, you know, whatever light regimen that you want to use. The light regimen that I, that I use for vegging plants is um, uh, 13 hours of light in a 24-hour period. And I use 12 hours from... Uh, say 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., that's 12 hours straight, and then the, in the middle of the dark period, um, so five and a half hours uh, after the lights have uh, gone off, so you have 12 hours of lights on, so say 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., and then five and a half hours of darkness, the lights will come out for one hour, so basically like in the middle of the night, the lights come on, um, and then after that hour of light, the lights go back off for another five and a half hours, and then the cycle is repeated. So basically, um, the hour of light in the middle of the dark period tricks the plants in thinking that the days are longer. Uh, longer days will keep plants in veg. And uh, this is a, a good way of um, saving on electric bills. And it is um, a good way of uh, transitioning when you go to flower the plants. There's not much of a change from veg to flower. Um, for flowering plants and sexing plants, I basically use 10 and a half hours of light and uh, 13 and a half hours of darkness. The dark period is actually what triggers flowering, not the light. So the 10 and a half hours is kind of the right ratio uh, that you need for uh, extreme flowering. And you can sex most plants within three to four days. The more extreme uh, would be seven to 10 days. But most flower, uh, most things you can sex within uh, three to four days, no problem. That's what I use for germination. That's incredible. What very detailed answer. I guess for me, the natural progression is tell me how you grow. How do you do it? Are you organic? Are you a soil guy? Are you cocoa? What's the rundown? I'm an organic guy. So I like using organic methods. Uh, sun grown is my, my preferred method, but I like to do my selections indoors um, to speed along things. Um, so, you know, I sex plants basically after the first um, true leaves i actually use what they call the fem technique uh, which allows you to do a topping of the main stem and leaving um, two-thirds left over and from that you're able to create not only just from topping like uh, two different branches but sometimes three to four the optimal is four different main branches from that one pinching and when you pinch um, the apical buds the main stem of your um, your plant it causes what are called auxins to go from the uh, the top of the plant down to the roots and will cause the roots to grow more. Um, this needs to be repeated basically every four to five days or three to four days, depending on the, the growth rate of the plant. And every time you do this, you're creating more main branches and you're also creating more roots. So it's going back and forth. So I do this in veg as I'm waiting for the plants to get to the right um, size. So from seed, for like indicas and multipolar hybrids, um, from seed to flower, I like to veg the plants from 30 to 60 days for like indicas and hybrids. Uh, for longer uh, flowering tropicals and equatorials, 
I like to veg the plants from 60 to 90 days from seed. Nice, nice. And what's your thoughts on selection of males? Do you like to do it based on that initial when you're sexing them or do you wait longer? How do you select males? Well, I do certain things. What I look for is under natural light when you're sprouting plants. Um, under natural light, there is like a day or two which um, the sprout will flash um, certain traits like colors. Like you can uh, see a flash of red or purple um, in the sprouts um, when they first come up above ground uh, just for a day or two. And that's kind of indication what they'll do in flower. Um, so you can actually do your selections for colors that way, picking out the special plants um, early on. So you have to waste your time growing out of these different plants to get those special plants. Um, but you, you basically indicate like this one had red, red traits, this one had purple traits. And then as you're uh, vegging it, you kind of um, see that when you maturely flower them out, you can see the, the, how, as a little sprout, this told you that this is going to be a super colorful plant and will have these special traits. Um, for uh, selecting males and females, um, there, there's three types of DNA that's used in cannabis. Uh, there's like the cellular DNA, which is like the structures. Um, that's what you see uh, outwardly, you know, the, the, the structure of the plant. That's kind of like um, the female side. So females, you want to see the structure. You want to make sure that they have um, good branching, lots of branching. Because if they're not branchy, they're kind of hempy. So if there's no, uh, not a lot of branching, it's more of a hemp plant. You know, it's kind of all stem. Um, so you want super branchy plants for your females. And then also you want to look at the roots. Um, you want to pull off the pots. I do a lot of repotting so I get to examine the roots, but um, you want plants that produce good root zones. You don't want a little teeny carrot. I don't want to go through um, growing a plant for nine months and then seeing that it has a small little carrot of a root. And this is why your plant you know, sucked. Um, so when you're breeding and you're selecting for these plants, you kind of look at the root zone, make sure they're prolific. Um, either growing sideways or downward or they're good roots because if you got 20 or 50 plants you're you know selecting from um, and there's no real, real way of like telling the difference between the plants from like the top up but the roots will tell you which ones will uh, grow better because that is kind of like the um, mitochondrial DNA the ability for it to uh, uptake nutrients and then convert that in the sugars into energy ATP same as humans Humans take sugars uh, from the mitochondria and they'll switch the sugars into ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is energy. Plants do the same thing. Um, so cannabis has this mitochondrial DNA, and that is something that you can see through the, the way it converts sugars and creates stem and um, you know, growth of the plants. Uh, the other thing to look for is um, uh, the chloroplast DNA, what creates the, the, the turpins, the cannabinoids, um, the, um, uh, the plants that create uh, the uh, car uh, carotenoids, those are like the colors and the, the plants. Uh, so that's why I look for colorful plants that have like reds and purples because they have these flavonoids and different things that impart certain turpins and uh, cannabinoids um, that makes certain plants special, uh, not only for flavors and tastes, but the highs along associated along with that. So, um, stems, uh, I rub them, uh, using like a piece of paper or 
something other than your fingers because you sm smell one plant and you smell another plant, they kind of mix together. But if you use a piece of paper, you can kind of smell the aroma of that plant. And if it's pungent or stringent, or if it affects the nasal passageways, it affects you certain different ways because of those long chain turpin profiles I was telling, I was talking about before. Those long chain turpins are something that are kind of unknown, but your body kind of recognizes. So if you have this certain experience by smelling the aroma of that plant, and that one's special. So you kind of mark that this one's got this special aroma. It's got a, a resin profile. It's got good roots. It's branchy. Um, that's something that uh, is good to select for. Uh, for males, I kind of do the same. I look for the large root zones, uh, the branchy ones, and the ones that have um, different uh, color content. So if you've got a bunch of males and some of them have, you know, petioles that have purple in them, um, but there's nothing else. The rest of the plant is green. Um, another one has purple petioles, but it has purple stems and uh, the sepals are purple. Then that one's got a higher uh, quantity of color to it. So that one might be chosen over one that has just green effects because, it, you know, there's nothing really you can, you know, um, pick from it other than the colors. Um, so those are just a few things that I use for the selection criteria, uh, as well as um, resin content. Uh, there's also uh, the type of trichomes on males. So if you have a male that has uh, trichome production on the sepals of the, the male flowers, um, I call them flowers, but they're the, the male projections uh, that you know drop the pollen. Uh, if you see resin on them, then that's also a good trait, especially if they have different colors on the resins, like the um, Neville's Haze Purple Tie uh, F3 male that I use for some of my lines, uh, it had purple um, resin trichomes on the males. So that was kind of a added cool thing that I like to uh, see in the males. That's awesome to hear. What a comprehensive rundown. Gosh, I feel like that's becoming my uh, go-to saying for this interview. I'll have to come up with something better. Um, but <laughs> following on with that, I wanted to ask just a few of the common things we hear nowadays about selection, like if you agree with them. The first one that comes to mind is DJ Short always loved to say that he wanted the more sativa of the two parents to be the mother. So did you do you feel like there's any um, sort of correlation with that? Have you ever heard that one? Uh, yeah, my, my, mine might be the uh, reverse of that. So with me, I think the females are what you see. The, so if you want it to look a certain way, you want the female to be that impression but if you want um the potency and the qualities that comes from the male so for males i look for um the ones that are stinkiest have uh the more branching um and the colors so colors branching and um you know root development from the male is what i think parts qualities and potency and then the female adds uh the looks and some of the smells to the line and that's kind of where I see, I see potency and qualities coming from the males and structures uh, and the, the way to um, use those, uh, you know, like the mitochondrial DNA from uh, the females. So chloroplast, uh, some mitochondrial DNA and cellular DNA from the males, mostly um, mitochondrial and cellular DNA for the females. Yeah, that's brilliant. I, I think I actually, uh, Subcool said, something along the same lines essentially so that's interesting to hear that that's a line there and he'd sort of noticed that too 
Um, I also forgot to mention that other question when you were talking about your light cycle, you know, shout out the gas lantern method. You really don't hear about it too much these days, but that's cool to hear you're rocking it. I guess... What's a modified gas lantern? It's, it's, um, I use it for the, the veg period um, uh, to fool the plants, but the flowering cycle is something I've developed. Um, and the way I've developed it is uh, the reason I use 10 and a half, uh, 13 and a half hours of darkness is that plants that are growing in Hawaii or at the equator um, aren't stimulated by um, you know longer periods of dark period. So if you use too much dark period, it doesn't actually cause the plants to grow any faster. So I tried to um, think if I was a plant at the equator or Hawaii or other places on earth, what would work in all these different places? So the 13 and a half hours of darkness works in nature, uh, but it also works for all these plants to kind of give you the right ratio of light and darkness. Yeah, I love it. So if I just loop you back to one of the other common breeding selection tips we hear, what's your thoughts on the old stem rub? Stem rub is great. Uh, that gives you the aromas and the stuff that you should be, you know, uh, you know, the more pungent or aromatic that the, the line is. Um, if it, if it basically makes you feel like a certain, um, way, then that, that is something special. And our, our chemistry is evolved with cannabis. Um, I mean, our endocannabinoid system is evolved with cannabis. So either, uh, it's evolved with us or we evolved with it. Um, it's, it's intrinsic to uh, human development. So, um, when you have an aroma that does something to you, uh, with certain plants, there's something specific in that. Uh, chemical uh, compound profile that is affecting you um, in whatever special way is it, you know, the, the primary terpenes with the long chain terpen profile, along with the cannabinoids that are affecting you. Is it a, a flavonoid with those terpenes? It's, it's a combination of all the, all the above. It's the stuff that uh, we need to do more studies on, but they just haven't, um, haven't had the funding and the right people to. Yeah, Definitely. I guess a question I wanted to ask you, given like the amount of diversity there is within your clone library, when you finally do go to make a new cross, do you approach it as very conceptual, like you sort of map out on paper, or is it more of like a let's mix and match and then sort of go from there based on what feels good? How do you approach breeding new crosses? Well, I there's a lot of work that goes in that no one ever sees. So there's a lot of stuff written down of what would be great to work together. So there's projects within projects. So I'll, I'll attempt to um, grow out a bunch of varieties that I'm working for a certain project. Well, that project may go ahead because I've gotten the males and females that I want with the, you know, the varieties that I need to create that project. Well, another project may be delayed because I'm not getting the plants that I need for that project. So a lot of it's written down. Everything's mapped. All the seeds are grown. Um, the quantities, um, uh, it's, it's all written down. I have map after map of uh, seed trays of all these different varieties and uh, growing out these varieties for certain projects. Um, a lot of them don't get to fruition. And then as you're growing them, you know, shit happens. Um, plants die. Uh, there's damp off, uh, there's birds that might destroy them. There might be, you know, a child that goes in and pulls up plants. I've, you name it, things have happened. Um, you know, a light falls down on the plants, killing those plants. You know, you, you can't help life. <laughs> so you can't always plan for everything. So, um, a lot of these, 
happen because you're just trying to make the best thing possible with what you have. Um, a lot of times there are attempts at preservation. And if you can't uh, do preservation, there's conservation. And then if conservation is not possible, meaning you have only like two plants and you're just trying to do what you can with them. Um, but if you can't do that, then you make something special with it. And sometimes that gets, you know, that's kind of like with what you have. So trying to make special, whatever things you can make as special as possible with what you have available. Fantastic. Fantastic. So what sort of things can we expect to see coming out and how long away are they? Uh, well, there's the Hayes project that we talked about, and that's been in works for several years already. Um, so we were taking like the best varieties that we've been growing over the years and kind of like going, yeah, this line would be great for the Hayes project. And we'd, you know, put that aside and then uh, work on other plants. So we've been steadily going through the different varieties, picking out the best plants for the Hayes project. And then um, we're making our crosses with the best plants. And then we're uh, also, uh, once we've done that individually, we're doing them with each other. You know, we send each other these different plants. So the Hayes projects um, are in the, for the near future and the later future. So uh, there should be some stuff coming out that will be kind of pre-Hayes project stuff that will be released. So a lot of that should be picked up if a person can, because it's going to be special in itself, um, as well as what will be coming, you know, later on. Uh, there's going to be, I don't want to jinx myself, but there's, um, there's going to be um, like a hash haze line, but it's, it's basically uh, called Mirage. It's basically using the best hash lines to make like a hash haze, but it's all different hash uh, production varieties from around the world. So like cashmere, um, um, Persian, Turkish, Lebanese, um, Afghani, just using the best hash producing varieties and creating like um, a haze version of that, but not, not haze, but a hash, you know, mix of the best plants. Um, chocolate tie, I'm trying to bring back several different chocolate ties, um, as well as uh, different tie varieties. So I expect different tie stick varieties, um, as well as chocolate ties and other ties um, to um, be available at some point. Mexican varieties, I'm trying to um, bring back some of the heirloom varieties that we've you know grown. So the first generation, we're like saving the plants. Um, and a lot of people go, I grew one plant and it wasn't what I wanted from the line. Well, one plant is going to be one variability in a line that needs work and saving in itself. So people will get to experience um, you know, these Mexican varieties that, you know, give you happiness and awesome effects. But if you're growing one plant, you're only getting one aspect of the line. So sometimes you need to grow out more than one plant. Sorry, guys, you need to <laughs> grow up more than one plant uh, to experience the line and say if you like. Because some plants will give you, or some lines will give you several plants that are wonderful and great. Uh, but some of them that are absolutely stellar um, just comes out from a few more plants. Not all the times do you have to grow out a hundred plants to get these wonderful plants, but if it's a preservation or a conservation, it's only been, you know, one year, say the seeds were from the sixties or seventies and they were, you know, maintained, but barely maintained, they need selection. So that first year of saving it, um, you're not going to get the best plants while you are the grower and growing these out. So it may need another generation or two before those beautiful expressions the best expressions of the line come out for people so i'm going to be working on bringing some 
you know, lines like the Acapulco Gold and others um, to make it more something that people remember as being that awesome smoke that they had back in the day. Um, some other things are going to be um, some Hawaiian varieties. I'm trying to bring that, uh, bring more of those uh, available. Some of them were unknown Hawaiian varieties. Um, I'm not going to say they were Maui Wowie or Puna Butter or something else because I didn't know, but they could be. Um, some of them are fantastic Hawaiian lines, but um, I just, I'm going to say the time frame it was from, uh, the island it may have been sourced from, and leave it at that. Um, you know, you as growers can, you know, decide what you want. Uh, I'm not going to butter it up any more than I, I know already. Um, but there's going to be some heirloom Hawaiians coming out, um, uh, several different Mexicans, some of the haze, purple haze, um, Colombian golds, reds, wacky weed, um, Vietnamese black, um, Vietnamese delat. Um, there's a Vietnamese haze I'm making, which is basically uh, five different Vietnamese um, heirloom strains, all like land race heirloom um, mixed together. So that one's going to be uh, special for people. Um, so you get these, you know, psychedelic flowers uh, that are, you know, racy to, you know, purple and uh, colorful. And uh, some of them are candelabra style. Some of them are like uh, weeping willow. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of expressions, a lot of cool stuff for people to try. So Mexicans, Colombians, um, Thais, um, Hawaiians, and then the hash lines. And then there's going to be some of my uh, other lines that I need to refresh will be coming out as well. Um, and I, I, I have a lot of African stuff coming in the, the, the near future, but, um, you know, just like the Indian varieties that'll be coming after that and the Afghanis, I'm also doing some Afghani lines. Uh, there's just so much, uh, but it, you can only do so much, but I'm trying to preserve as well as making these lines, um, as much as I can before it's too late because, um, they become a viable pretty quick. And if we can't maintain these, the seed stock, then it'll go bad. So I'm trying to maintain them for everybody's future. Um, because if I don't do it, uh, who knows who will. And, um, anyway, I'm just trying to make more stuff available for, uh, people while I'm here. Very noble act, and we're all very appreciative. In amongst all those all-star names you mentioned, you referenced the Black Vietnamese. We had a few questions about that. Could you just give us an overview of it? It appears to be quite a uh, a fan favorite. Yeah, I mean, the, there's the 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 Vietnamese Black was more of a jungly weed. It was more from not the southern portion of Vietnam, but more from not quite. The China border, but something that was near the Isan province, but more inside of uh, Vietnam. Um, in Vietnam, it's been they've had a, a huge loss of uh, genetics. I don't know if it's from the communism there, uh, but uh, there isn't a lot of uh, cannabis production. Even um, twenty years ago, uh, there was a lot more varieties, and now it's it's really hard to find anything. So there's been a lot of genetic loss. Unlike Thailand that's had a resurgent, Laos, Cambodia, um, Vietnam has lost a lot of the lines. But uh, the Vietnam black was a jungle weed um, some, somewhere around the same latitude as, um, you know, the Isan uh, area of Thailand, which is more of the uh, northeastern uh, portion of Thailand, which borders Laos and Cambodia. Uh, that's kind of a special area there but more so on the uh, vietnamese side so it's like a thin peninsula kind of like florida 
a lot of the varieties that are now there are from the southern portion around uh, Dilat in the south. In Dilat, there's really nothing there anymore. Um, my friend, he's an, his family is indigenous from that uh, part of Vietnam. He's an indigenous uh, Vietnamese. Um, and he went looking for stuff in the, through his cousins and family, and uh, he wasn't able to find anything. It's very rare and hard to find now. Um, so what we've been able to preserve is kind of like the last remnants of what was there at one time. And in Vietnam, it was, um, you know, they used to have a, a huge cannabis culture, but um, because of uh, what happens with, um, you know, making things illegal uh, over time has caused a lot of eradication throughout the world. Um, a lot of that eradication happened in the 1930s after uh, alcohol prohibition was um, changed over. They decided to make cannabis illegal, but they got that notion from the apartheid movement in South Africa. So a lot of the anti-drug laws that were created were to control people uh, in South Africa to like, uh, you know, the, the, the people that were slaves that were freed were controlled by use of um, creating um, cannabis being illegal because a lot of the native people were uh, smoking cannabis. So they made those illegal to try to control people then. So in the 1930s, the United States incorporated some of that uh, to also control the Mexicans and the black people in the United States um, through, um, you know, trying to scare the public into thinking they were rapists from consuming cannabis and different things. There's a lot of um, literature put out there that was um, just totally false, just trying to scare people, but it was a way of controlling people and to um, force them to go to a different country because uh, at that time the stock market had crashed and people were um, you know, scared of losing their jobs and didn't have money. So they, they went to picking on people from you know, neighboring Mexico or uh, in some of the poorer regions of the Americas. So that unfortunately um, caused the United States to incorporate those laws, which forced other countries like India that had a huge cannabis history and long, long-reaching cannabis to make things illegal. And that forced uh, all the different countries around the world to um, create the drug laws that they have now. And a lot of them haven't reversed, um, reversed themselves like they have in the United States, unfortunately. Yeah, it's got a very sort of checkered history, doesn't it? I guess this would be a good point to jump into. What's your thoughts on the current state of legalization and what's your thoughts on the future of it? Do you think that we're going to move to a model where the the average home grower slash small producer is pushed out and it's all corporate? Well, unfortunately, a lot of the laws that we as, um, you know, a, a democracy, uh, we vote for things but they get changed after we vote them. So the lawmakers change what we vote for. So a lot of stuff is not what the people had voted for. Um, and that is sad because it forces out a lot of, um, you know, people that could be growing it, you know, for medicine, uh, for small farms, um, for small businesses, they could create a lot of things, you know, for textiles, for cement, uh, for medicine, um, there's so many uses for cannabis, but unfortunately, when these laws are voted on, they're changed by you know companies um, that buy out these lawmakers, and then uh, no one's happy um, except the people that have money to be able to circumvent these laws. 
and um, you know established businesses. So the state of things is not very good. Um, legalization would be great, uh, but the people need to have be able to grow what they want. And then for people that can't grow what they can, um, they they need other people to grow for them. So there needs to be outlets for people to um, get their canvas grown for them. And then um, there needs to be studies on this stuff. And we need to be able to, um, you know, use this for pain medicine or for PTSD, um, uses for sleep, anxiety, depression. There's so many medical uses uh, for different ratios of can cannabis and the different cannabinoids that can be useful. Um, but the laws um, need to be changed where more of that is available for people to study. Um, less of the big businesses need to, um, you know, get less availability to uh, what the, the typical man doesn't get. So there should be equal laws, I guess. Uh, around the world, it seems like uh, legalization is kind of opening up. So hopefully I have um, great hope that around the world we will, you know, get to a point where we're in a better state. But right now it's kind of all over the place and, and it's not, not good. But um, I, I am hopeful that uh, people will get together and um, vote for something that's truly helpful for the, the world. Because we could be offsetting global warming if we grew enough plants. Um, we could be changing uh, a lot of these things that are being used for wood. We could be growing cannabis for construction uses, everything. There's just so much that if we just converted it to cannabis, fuels, um, textiles, everything, food, nutrients, supplements, um, it's all there. It just We just need to make more use of it. Um, yeah, I guess uh, that was my answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly. We can only hope that... Uh governments around the world adopt more of an open view on these things i guess on the more individual level i'd love to ask as we do a lot of our breeders what would be your advice for someone who's just looking to get into breeding to take their game a bit more seriously what would you uh say to them uh i'd say um just grow just grow plants um the more you grow the more experience you get um, try not to take what you read in these books as fact, because there's a lot of BS out there. There's a lot of stuff that people just regurgitated. Um, that's not necessarily true. Um, so, you know, take experience, um, for what it is, you know, grow out the plants and, and get your experience first. Um, you go ahead and breed and make some plants, you know, do some selections. Uh, you don't have to grow out hundreds of thousands of plants to, to do some breeding, but it's not helpful to uh, take stressed out plants, do pollen chucks um, with clones that you got from somewhere, from someone, and then, you know, try to push those out to everybody else because those multi-poly hybrid pollen chucks are just not helpful to anybody. Um, and then getting clones from everybody. I think you should grow more stuff from seed. Uh, doing selections yourself, selecting plants, uh, it should be done more everybody's relying on other people to do the work for them. So they get these cuttings. Uh, there's so many more potent strains. There's so many high qualities that people are just not experienced. You saying people don't experience, you know, a lot of the different highs and qualities. It's because they're doing these clones that everybody else is growing out. So you're only getting what other people are doing, but if they're growing stuff from seed, they can see, they can 
create their own clones from these lines and you know have special plants. It's very easy to find one pack of seed and get some very, very um, good um, traits out of them. Um, you just need to grow out the plants and experience them. And don't be afraid of growing plants for a long period of time. You know, um, the best plants aren't the fastest plants. And don't kill plants that uh, need some nurturing because, you know, those plants usually are the best plants if you just, you know, give them the time to, to grow. It's kind of like the ugly duckling, you know, it might look weird and, you know, offset, but it'll grow out of that. It'll grow out of those weird traits at first. And once it's established itself and you get these beautiful plants that you get to experience. Um, so grow all the plants, don't kill everything. And um, just because a plant is experiencing intersex traits doesn't mean um, that they got bad seeds or something. Uh, usually that's a sign that um, they're under stress. So they're, they're being overwatered or there's uh, too much nitrogen in the soil or uh, there's insects invading and, and chewing out their roots or uh, you know, sucking the life out of the plant. They're, they're telling you there's something wrong. So usually figure out what that problem is and then um, remedy the problem and then keep growing that plant. Um, but the real thing is for breeders that are trying to get into it, just, just grow the plants and keep it simple. Some great advice there for sure. And I definitely get behind that, guys. You can do some cool stuff even if you're not popping hundreds of thousands of seeds. I guess I would love to quickly ask you, though, if someone wanted to try to up their game a bit, maybe take on uh, a more raw line, you know, like try to filial breed some Thai seeds or something, you know, like have a good go at it. How many seeds do you think they should run? Given we know you tend to need to run through a few more, what what sort of number would you throw out there as like just a ballpark figure? Uh, well, it's 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 hard to say. So if if a line is raw, and uh, there's no selections done, you're going to need a lot more seeds. Uh, if a person has done a preservation and there's done selections over a couple of generations, or if it's a true breeding strain that's you know been preserved. Um, you'll need less seeds. So if a person's worked the line, um, you may only need a pack of 10, but 20 is better. Um, but if you, if you got a raw seed line that, you know, you're going to need selections, you might need uh, 30, 50 seeds. It all depends, but you can still grow out those plants from a small selection, make more seed. And then from those seeds, you'll have a lot more seeds to work with. So you can work with 10 to 20 seeds it's going to take you a little longer, you know, use all the males, females, grow those out, make seed from them. And then you have thousands of seeds to select from. Um, the problem is when you get that many plants is what do you select after that point? You know, it just gets to be where there's so many plants that it, it's hard to, to make the selection. So you really don't need thousands of plants unless you're doing full large scale breeding practices. That's a, that's a lot of work. Um, so, Basically, you can narrow it down to, uh, you know, 10, 15 females, uh, four to six males, and you can do a lot of uh, good breeding that way. And, um, you know, as long as you have, um, you're selected for certain things, um, you know, branchy plants, you know, things that are, have odor, resin production, good roots, um, you'll do well, you know, but there should be a goal involved with the breeding. You should, should do it to improve the line and there shouldn't be just you know, crossing this and that because it's cool because, you know, what's the use in that? I mean, that's fun. Uh, but if you're, if you really want to do some breeding, you should have an end goal, you know, you want to, um, 
take a line that grows small and make it grow big, but keeping the same type of quality flowers. That's, you know, a nice goal to have for a lot of people, for instance. Certainly. You can only reach what you aim for. I've seen in your work that you've uh, incorporated deep chunk into a few of your lines, and I guess it sort of fits that category of preservation. What's your thoughts on Tom Hill's line? I've always been a fan. Deep chunk? Uh, I might have used one a long, long time ago with some purple bubble kush, um, but I don't usually use deep chunk much. Deep chunk is very... Um, uh, it, it, it stomps all over the genetics, meaning it, um, it takes over. It, it's it's a good quality um, indica broadleafed hash plant Afghani. You know, more of like a Mazari Sharif, shorter uh, but larger flowers, uh, but not too tall, chunky. Um, it's good breeding material because you can kind of you know what you're going to get out of it. So if you breed something into it and you see those traits, you can kind of see what um, what the other line imparts into it. So it's a it's a good training line for breeding, I guess. Because you know it's going to be consistent. Certainly. And uh, do you have any experience with any of his other lines, like Pine Tar Kush, X18, His Haze? Yeah, I, I actually I, I took the Pine Tar Kush and I bred it into the um, Citrali, and I bred that into the OG Kush project I did. And the reason I did that was I wanted to impart real Kush into the modern OG Kush. So when people grew out my varieties, they couldn't say, oh, there's no real cushion in it because you know it, it imparts both lines. So I, I grew out those, um, the pine tar kush, um, which is, is pretty good line. It kind of has an Afghani look to it, but it's Pakistani. Um, has a, a good aroma profile. And um, yeah, the, the stable breeds from Tom Hill's work. Um, so yeah, uh, Tom Hill's got some good work. The X18 was good. Um, and I said, X, uh, Pakistani line, similar to the Citrali. Um, lots of different aromas, fruit flavors, um, nice stuff. Uh, not overly potent, but a good breeding material, kind of good to kind of breed with other things. Lovely, lovely. And I mean, you just touched on OG a moment ago. You've done quite a few different crosses with different OG cuts. And so I'd love to hear your take on the different OGs, if you have a preferred one and how some of those crosses turned out. Sure. Um, so when I was growing for the medical clubs in the early 2000s, um, we were growing uh, what was available in Northern California and then bring it to the medical clubs. The medical clubs wanted OG Kush. Um, so the medical clubs that I went to, they would take uh, their OG Kush cuttings and they would have 1,000 watt uh, HPS um, high pressure sodium lights growing under each plant, lollipopped. Um, so huge lights, lots of energy, you know, huge electric bills and, um, and rooms just with these, um, you know, small plants producing not a whole lot, but, uh, it was worth it to them because they were, people were buying it for a high dollar. Um, but they, they didn't yield worth the shit. Um, they, they grew poorly, rooted poorly, uh, because most of them were derived from like bag seed. Someone's bag seed was, oh, this was some really good stuff. So they grew it out. Um, usually from like, you know, stressed out situations, it, it hermed. Uh, so there's stability issues with it, but the, the, the smoke was really good. Um, so I decided, I asked the, the, one of the guys, the place was uh, uh, G3 Collective. It was an Upland 
Southern California. And um, they're, they try to fight the, the, the state and the DA and lost. Uh, but anyway, uh, I asked him, what are the two lines that um, have the highest quality flowers that you guys love, but don't yield much and don't root well? I'll, I'll breed these and, and improve them. And so he gave me the SoCal, SoCal G13 cut and the, um, uh, the True Kush uh, cut. And he said, these, these are the best we have. Uh, I'd wish they'd yield more and I wish they rooted better. So uh, I basically bred, um, my idea was to breed the modern Kush with real Kush. Um, so I decided that I didn't like to reverse anything. So just, you know, reversing the pollen, it, you have unstable plants. You, you can't make anything stable from instability. So, uh, I decided to use real males. So I used the Citrali, which is a Pakistani, uh, line, um, with the, uh, pine tar kush. And I found a male that was more, uh, Afghani land race looking. And I used that to pollinate, um, the true kush. And then from there, I, I basically grew up 50 plants and I selected the best um, males and females. So I worked down from 50 plants down to like 17 females, down to like um, nine males. And then finally worked down to the best 10 females and uh, four best males. And then it worked down to the last uh, three males and the last seven females. And then I bred those to create the, what I call true gangster Kush. Um, those two males I also uh, used to breed uh, to the other OG Kushes that was, I was growing out. And I, over uh, several years of going to all the clubs, I collected all the different OG Kushes from the San Fernando Valley Kush, the Skywalker, um, the Hell's Angels OG, which is not the same as my Hell's Angel line. Um, there's also the Diablo OG, um, the abusive OG Kush. Um, there was the fire OG for Northern California and the SoCal fire OG, the NorCal fire OG was a lot better. Um, and there was a lot of other OGs and, uh, you know, master Kush and different lines. I grew at the same time, Tahoe OG, um, trying to find the best OGs. So my, my selection criteria was finding the most potent, highest quality OGs, but at the same time I was trying to find ones that grew well. Um, and rooted well for the breeding purposes because um, ones that would produce really good flower uh, but didn't grow very well weren't worth it to me. Um, so I, I excluded the San Fernando Valley Kush because it didn't grow very well. It was a short little plant, produced wonderful, great buds, but from what I was trying to do, uh, it didn't cut the mustard. Um, though I'd like to go back and do some breeding with it, but not at the time because. It, it, it wasn't what I was looking for. So the best cuttings that I found were um, the NorCal Fire OG, uh, an OG Kush we got from the Hells Angels in Oakland. It was um, at the time 27-year-old cut that they had. They just called it OG Kush. Um, I used that line to create the Hells Angel line. Um, I also grew out the uh, Skywalker OG, um, which was uh, the best one I felt. It just did the trick every time. Every time you smoked it, it, it just, you know, uh, checked all the different boxes. Uh, the Abusive OG was another one that was very good yielding, also high quality. Um, the two, the best one was the OG Kush we got from the Hells Angels and the Skywalker. Those were my two favorite. Uh, the Tahoe was also a, a larger yielding, good OG. 
um, but not quite as good as the Skywalker and the Ojakush we got. Um, the Fire OG out of SoCal was not very good yielding. It was kind of wiry and it was good, good uh, buds, but it just wasn't growing very good. The North Cal Fire OG um, yielded very well and had, you know, the same good characteristics as the SoCal one, but it was just a, a better plant in general. Uh, and I did some breeding with that to make the, uh, the uh, OG purple fire tie lines. Um, but uh, Skywalker, the abusive, uh, the OG Kush, we, we made different lines with those. So I had bred with those. Um, unfortunately I had a, um, warehouse in Southern California, um, which I was using, um, when I came down here to do some breeding, but, uh, it got sabotaged. So all the cuttings, all the different, um, things I was doing to, to bulk the OG lines, the true gangster Kush, uh, project that I had done, um, was lost. So um, I only have a small amount of seed left. I need to revisit those for people. But that, that whole OG project got squashed because of all the loss of all the plants for reproduction and all the different uh, clones that I lost. I lost uh, Juicy Fruit Thai, um, you know, the one, the uh, various lines, the Maui Waui, different things that, uh, you know, I don't have anymore. Wow, that's a bummer to hear you lost that. I mean... Right at the end of the story, you mentioned, yeah, you lost the one. What's your thought on that? It's sort of come more to the forefront of discussions with um, a few different breeders using it. Do you think it's as good as what some people make it out to be? Well, I, I, I smoked it years ago. and uh, But at the time, um, when I smoked it, there was an earthquake. <laughs> so <laughs> wow. uh, I, didn't, I, I didn't know if it was the earthquake or the smoke that kind of hit me a certain way i think it was kind of the, the, the combination of the two so um it's it's definitely got um it's a special potent weed it's definitely got some great qualities to it for sure and there you have it gang what do you think huge shout out to snow high for swinging by dropping that part one of two knowledge bombs on us and as always huge thank you to our incredible sponsors seeds here now all the latest breeders the hottest drops an incredible new website they've been slashing prices to give you the best deals while still offering their patent guarantee on satisfaction and germination check them out likewise simply souvenirs if you're after hand selected range of boutique genetics both local and international check them out guys they've got everything you need from seeds to smoking accessories to vapes everything under the sun simply souvenirs they'll look after you best customer service in the game huge shout out simply souvenirs big shout out to our friends at copert biological systems providing all the predators you need to keep your garden pests and pathogens free check out the spidex vital if you're worried about spider mites you should release these things periodically guys i promise you you will view it as an investment in your garden ensuring that you never have any spider mites in your garden should be one of your key priorities as a cultivator huge shout out copert biological systems we appreciate you and your support likewise pulse sensors do you want more yield more resin better flower better concentrates who doesn't check out pulse guys if you're ready to get serious get a pulse sensor from a single tent to a single room to a multi-facility operation don't let hidden variables hold your crop back get your grow parameters in check and start yielding the highest quality possible huge shout out pulse sensors thank you so much 
Likewise, big shout out to the Patreon gang. We love and appreciate you. Please consider checking out the Patreon if you want early access to upcoming episodes, additional interviews you won't get access to unless you're on there, as well as genetic giveaways and ad-free content. Check it out, friends. That's the Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. All one word. We love and appreciate you. And there you have it, my friends. Part one of this two-part hitter from the man himself, Snow High. Come on back for the next one and I'll see you there. I'll see you.